the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Abraham continued, Look, you have given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, Your offspring will be that numerous. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, like Abram, we too wrestle with your promises. We enter times of doubt and uncertainty, and God, I would ask that this morning that you bring great conviction to our heart and our soul to believe what you have put before us. May we have a great measure of faith today to believe what you have promised and what you have destined us for, to be in your presence, to be apart from sin, and to be restored in right relationship with you perfectly. May these things begin today for some, and may they be maintained for the rest of us. We ask these things in your Son's holy name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I'd like to invite you to open up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Have you ever been surprised? Truly surprised. Not the surprise that often accompanies my wife, or dare I say even Pastor Daniel, as I'm perfectly positioned behind a wall and step out at just the right time and greet them nicely with a loud voice. I mean surprised at something in life. Now, I'll be honest, I'm one who guesses surprises. That is part of my personality. I would shake the presents under the tree and then look at my mom with a slightly smug face and tell her what she had wrapped for me the night before. But one year, they got me. I was 13. I had been begging for an ATV for a four-wheeler for some time, and I was hoping that this Christmas would be the one. So I, ch- I opened up, or I woke up Christmas morning, I checked the garage before we opened presents, nothing there. I looked in the backyard, nothing there as well. Obviously it can't fit under a tree, but I was still hopeful until we started opening the presents. And one by one, I'll be honest, there was a little bit of disappointment that crept in. I wasn't mad at my parents, I, I knew it was a big ask, I was just really hopeful. So I got to the last present, it was a tiny one wrapped Way too small, obviously, to be a four-wheeler, and I opened it up, and there was a key, and I was shocked. You see, it wasn't in the garage because my grandparents also knew how I am, and so they had brought it over in their truck and parked it down the street. I was genuinely surprised. I remember for the feeling, for lack of a better word, the shock, the surprise, my young mind was blown away. Fast forward a little over a decade, and Laura and I are married. We're parents to a little rambunctious boy, and we're expecting number two. I get home late from working as she has made cupcakes, and on the inside of the cupcake was either blue or pink. She had found out the gender at a doctor's appointment, and she was going to reveal it to me. I bit into that cupcake, expecting one thing, and lo and behold, staring back at me was the color pink. I was shocked. A girl dad, me. I had always proclaimed that the Lord would give me four or five boys. Now, in addition to my son, I have three little girls, and I'm wrapped around their fingers. Have you ever been surprised? 
This morning, as we narrow in on the second half of Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to illustrate from the life of a man who is given the surprise of a lifetime. And this surprise comes in the form of a promise. So Romans chapter 4 is where we'll be, and I'm going to read our entire section this morning, if you would follow along. Starting in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified, because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in God's sight, in whom Abraham believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. Verse 22, Therefore it was credited to him for righteousness, Now, it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Would you pray with me? Father, we as your church are gathered here to praise you, the sovereign Lord who has done a work in so many of our hearts. And Father, as I preach your word, I pray simply that they would be your words for this congregation and nothing more. Help us to sit under the word, desiring to be changed by it. God, convict us where we need convicting and encourage us where we need encouraging. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. The main point of this passage is as follows. The promises of God have always been received by faith. The promises of God have always been received or obtained by faith. There's an outline in the bulletin if you would like to follow along. As a reminder to our context, Paul is spelling out in the beginning of Romans that all have sinned, all are guilty before God, both Jew and Gentile alike. But now in God's plan of redemption, Gentiles are included in the family of God. So there was foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament, but now it's actually realized. And what that does is that makes the Jewish side of the church have some questions. What about the law? And what about obedience? What about circumcision, Paul? And Paul's going to answer those objections. But for chapter 4, the focus overall is about our justification. How can we be justified before God? And Paul clarifies things, and he says, no, it's not any of those things. It's not anything you do. It's not your obedience. But let me instead show you how salvation has always worked from the beginning, by grace, through faith. And let me illustrate this for you through the life of Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Let me show you that his justification came before he was circumcised. And let me show you that the promise was received by faith and nothing else. So that's what Paul proceeds to do. 
In light of us already walking through Romans, the main point that I have here is not new for us, but it is vital for us to understand. The promises of God have always been received by faith. And as mentioned before, this surprise of a lifetime happened in the life of Abraham, a man that God called out of idolatry, out of paganism, to come and follow after him. That's the story of our salvation, too. He calls this man, he promises to make this man the father of many nations, and that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But the question comes, how will this happen? Abraham and Sarah have no offspring. So that's the question undergirding all of it. Because as you read Abraham's story, this is the tension all the way from Genesis 12 to Genesis 20, and in part of what Paul is picking up in Romans 4. How will God make this promise happen? Abraham was already fairly old when he was called, probably around 70 years of age. Month after month turns to year after year. And those of you in here who have struggled with infertility, you know the pain here. But God, through Moses, wants us to see the importance of this promise in Genesis. Why do I say that? Because it's amazing when you think about it like this. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have roughly the first 2,000 years of world history communicated. Then in the next 10 chapters, we focus in on about 25 years of one man's life. And the main emphasis, the main tension is this. Will God keep his promise? And then we read in chapter 21 of Genesis, And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time that God had told him. So Paul draws on this amazing and surprising story throughout Romans chapter 4 to paint the very clear picture that our justification before God and the promises of God have always been received by faith. It was true in the life of Abraham. He did nothing to get called out from idolatry. He did nothing to earn this promise. And then when he tried to take matters into his own hands with Pharaoh and Abimelech, and even when he listened to Sarah and slept with her servant to try to make the offspring happen, things just got worse. And it was true for the church in Rome as well as they're trying to figure out what these Jew and Gentile relationships actually look like. And it is true for us today. The promises of God have always been received by faith. So last week, Patrick did a great job outlining what faith looks like, and it's a relation to our justification. And this week, we want to see how the promise that God would make for himself a new people through the calling out of Abraham comes to pass, and we get to be part of that through faith. So faith, just like last week, is the key here. And I think there are four truths from the text that help us to see the main point and understand why it must be true, why it has to be this way, why God ordained it this way. The promises of God have always been received by faith. Four truths that show that. And first is this, grace, not obedience, is our guarantee. Grace, not obedience, is our guarantee. Starting in verse 13 again, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, then faith is made empty and the promise nullified. Why? Because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants. Not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is, Abraham, is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. 
This was the hardest part for the Jewish side of the church to understand. Obedience to the law could never bring about justification before God. While the law in and of itself is good, it arouses within us our sinful nature so that we hear, you shall not do that, and we, because of that nature, desire to do that very thing. The Mosaic law here that Paul is referencing was really serving as a gatekeeper until the new covenant would come. But even in this example from Abraham, Paul is still spelling it out. It can't justify you. Obedience cannot justify a sinner before God. If God had made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and predicated it with, I'm going to make you a great promise, Abraham, but only if you keep the law. He might as well have not even given the promise at all. No one can keep the law. It highlights our sins so that we instead should recognize our fallen state and turn to God all the more. There's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself, but instead something terribly wrong with us. So in a way, certain Jews here in Rome had it backwards. The promises of God and justification before God wasn't accomplished through obedience, but faith. And when you understand that, then you come to recognize that faith in turn produces obedience in your life. And this faith, as we will see, brings about a righteousness as well. So faith here is intrinsically linked to the grace of God. That's the point here in these verses. Look at verse 14. If the promise to bear a child of Abraham, that's another name for being a part of the family of God, if that promise is given to those who follow the law, then faith is made empty and the promise nullified. Why? Verse 15, because the law produces wrath. It tells us not to sin, and we in our sin transgress it so that we incur the wrath of God. It's like during my teenage years. My dad told me hundreds of times, probably thousands of times, to get the clothes off of my floor in my room growing up. And you know what I did? I got them all up except for one every single time. I always left one piece of clothing on the floor. That was the stubbornness of my heart. I heard the law, and my sinful self still desired to break it. It's the same for the Mosaic law. And Paul's huge point where truth number one comes from is right there in verse 16. This is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants. How can Gentiles, how can you and I be included as Abraham's offspring now? Not just Jew, but Jew and Gentile coming together in Christ who is the new Israel so that the new people of God are now one and the promise to Abraham is being fulfilled. How can that happen? How can it not be our works that achieve it or our obedience or anything else that justifies us or obtains God's promises for us? It's because the grace of God is the guarantee here. He's the one signing the note. The promise is guaranteed by God's grace, not our gifts or our works. So grace and faith here go hand in hand. God's grace towards his elect guarantees the promise, and faith is the reception of that promise. I want to say that again. God's grace towards his elect guarantees this promise, and faith is the reception of that promise. The promises of God have always been received by faith because the grace of God guarantees it. Number two, God's omnipotence grounds our faith. God's omnipotence grounds our faith. Look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He, Abraham, believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. So will your descendants be. 
Simply put, the object of our faith grounds our faith. The object of our faith grounds our faith. Let me illustrate it like this. If I say to a random stranger off the street, hey, you see that sports car over there? That tan 2002 Buick LeSabre? I trust you to take my car and go wash it and bring it back to me. Is my faith in this person grounded here? No, I don't know them. I have no reason to trust them. Honestly, it could go either way. I could see the car again or I could not. Now let's say I say to one of the youth students sitting over here, hey, can you go wash my car and bring it back to me? I know them. My car isn't getting washed. (laughs) They'll take it for a bit, probably bring it back, but I know their nature. I know their character. I'm joking, parents. Your children are amazing. Okay, (laughs) now let's say that I say to my wife, babe, can you go wash my car and bring it back here? Other than a slight comment about why I can't wash the car myself, I know that she will take the car, she'll wash it, she read through my notes, she said she'll vacuum it as well, and she'll bring it back to me. Why? Because I know her. I know her character. I know her nature, the type of person she is. You see, for us, the degree of trust is dependent upon the nature of who we are putting our trust in. In many ways, it is the same with God. We learn to trust Him more and more as we walk with Him longer in this life. But here, in Romans chapter 4, there is something very specific that Paul is outlining about why we should trust God. And it's found namely in one of His attributes. It's a part of His very nature. It is known as His omnipotence. That's simply a word that communicates that God is all-powerful. He is in complete control of Himself and His creation It doesn't mean he can do literally anything. God cannot act against his nature. He cannot lie, for he is the embodiment of truth. He cannot do evil things since he is perfectly holy and good, but he has complete and total control over everything. So you look so look back at verse 17. Paul quotes here from Genesis 17 and God reissuing his promise to Abraham, and he says, I will make you the father of many nations. Paul's making a point here. Abraham was always held in esteem as the father of the Jewish nation. But Paul's saying, no, your scope is too small. Look what God actually says there in Genesis 17, the father of many nations so that we can inherit the world. This is a beautiful thing. In the new covenant now, the concern isn't so much about the lineage and the land, but now with the risen son of God and his new covenant people who come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the promise has been expanded. And look back at the rest of verse 17. Paul's going to explain how this fits in with faith and what we learn from Abraham. He says, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he, that's Abraham, believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. This God that Abraham believed in is worthy of Abraham's complete and total trust, his complete and total faith. Why? Paul says, because this God gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. That last phrase is a reference back to creation, is it not? The God who creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. This God is all-powerful. This God gives life to dead things and creates new things from nothing. So yeah, Abraham, you're old and you're growing older and your wife isn't that far behind you and she is well past her childbearing age and you're not sure how it's all going to take place, but you know one thing. This God, this omnipotent God who gives life to dead things and creates things out of nothing, this God gave you a promise. And when he speaks, it is so. So watch Abraham as he brings life from you and your wife Sarah, both figuratively dead when it comes to having children because of their age. Watch as he calls this promise into existence from that which shouldn't exist. 
That's your God, Abraham. And the same is true for us, friends. We have faith. We have a complete trust in this same God, the God who says he is working out all things for our good and his glory, even though we don't always see it right now. The God who promises to never leave you nor forsake you, even though you feel like he has left. The God who will not let us be snatched out of his hand. The God who is with us in the valley and the mountaintop and every place in between. The God who provided the ultimate and final sacrifice and the sending of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be our propitiation, to be the appeasement of God's wrath. This God who gives life to dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He is the God that you and I serve, and he is the reason that our faith has grounding. Not anything we bring but everything he provides. The God who does these things is the God who our faith is grounded in. Therefore, friends, when you think about faith, you need to recognize that it is a certain faith that you have, a sure faith, because the object of our faith isn't found in you, but in God, and he is more sure and more certain than anything that we know. He is the God who gives life to dead things and calls things into existence that do not exist. I would be remiss if I didn't take just a quick moment and apply this to us today. There are marriages in here that feel dead. You wonder if there is any hope. You wonder if God even notices. You feel like you have more of a roommate than a spouse. He does notice. This God brings dead things back to life. There are parent and child relationships that feel as if it is a lost cause, that there will never be restoration. This God that we serve brings dead things back to life. There are others who feel overwhelmed by all that life has thrown at them, struggling with bills or struggling with even getting out of bed in the morning. Does God even see me, you wonder? He does. This God, as Abraham believed, brings dead things to life and calls things into existence that do not exist. Therefore, Remind yourself that your faith is grounded in that God. Not you, not someone else that you know or what they can do for you, not your circumstances or the fact that you have a good job or a nice house or whatever else. Our faith is grounded in God and God alone, for he alone is all-powerful and able to bring new life. This is the omnipotence of God, friends. The omnipotence of his grace. Death means nothing to omnipotence. Hopelessness and despair mean nothing to omnipotence. God gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. How do I know this? Because he did it for me firsthand. He did it for so many of you as well. He called dead people to new life through the power of his Holy Spirit. It is, as it says in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. True of Abraham, everything here. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. Together with Christ Jesus, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Omnipotence does that. 
This all-powerful God saves so many in here, and he is able to save those of you who might just find yourself in a church this morning. He is able to save you as well, those of, us, those of you who are still dead in your trespasses and sins. So come to him in faith. Trust in him. Don't cling to anything that you bring. Cling to him alone, and he will call you his own. Third, the glory of God guards against unbelief. The glory of God guards against unbelief. We have seen that the promises of God are received by faith. We have seen that these promises are guaranteed by God's grace and nothing else. We have seen that the very power of God, his omnipotence, grounds our faith and provides us assurance. But I mentioned earlier that Abraham definitely wasn't perfect. He had some moments where he seemed to doubt. He seemed to not have faith, right? Let's look at how Paul describes it. Verse 19. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old, and also the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was roughly 90 years old. And he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. For those of you in here who struggle with doubt at times, struggle in your faith, I pray that this point and hopefully this connection I'm trying to make is helpful for you. I don't want to offer you contrite or pithy sayings for you to help your own faith, but I want you to learn from Abraham and how even when he doubted, his faith did not weaken or waver. Because that's what Paul is getting at. Paul has answered every objection concerning justification by faith. He's moving to the end of this section where we will see our need for justification by faith. But here he's going to teach us something about faith that is vital for us to understand. You see, the common assumption in the church at large today is when you doubt, you are weak in faith. I don't agree. I think King David could be labeled a doubter based off many psalms, yet he was a man after God's own heart. The same is true with Abraham, like I said, in his interactions with Pharaoh and Abimelech and listening to his wife Sarah's solution for an heir. The same is true for countless saints throughout history. But Paul here will say that Abraham did not weaken and he did not waver in unbelief, but was actually strengthened. How is this? I think it's this. Faith makes us strong and that it enables us not to be weak in unbelief. Now this sounds obvious, but bear with me. Paul says that Abraham did not weaken when he considered his own body. That's what he says in Romans 4. But Genesis tells us, if you remember, that he at least did doubt. He says, shall I indeed be a father of a son at my age? Shall Sarah bear a son at her age? So Abraham did consider his age, although without being weakened in faith. This is what we must see. Abraham faced the facts as they were. He faced the facts as they were, the facts of his own age, the facts of Sarah's age. He looked at them as they were, yet he was not weakened. Why is that? Because while Abraham looked at the facts as they were, he did not keep looking at them only. He looked at them, and then he looked somewhere else. Namely, he looked to someone else. As Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the trouble with unbelief is that it only looks at the difficulties. He's telling us that it is unbelief to look at the difficulties only and only consider them and nothing else. But Lloyd-Jones says faith does not do that. Faith does not turn its back upon the problems. It surmounts them. It looks at them straight in the face and then rises above them. And is this not true of Abraham, friends? He considered the difficulties, 
And then he turned to the omnipotent God of the promise. So back to my original statement. Just because you have doubts does not mean you don't have faith. That's a fallacy. After Adam and before we go on to eternity, this is the reality of our existence. Doubt is the seedbed of faith. What do I mean here? Our natural disposition in our sin is to doubt the truth of God, to doubt all the things of God, to actually actively be against the things of God. So doubt is the natural disposition, yet God in his grace gives us faith that springs up in that seedbed and belief comes about. Some of the greatest saints throughout church history would testify to the fact that they were assailed by doubts all their lives. But here's the key difference. They were not overcome by these doubts, but instead overcame them. They considered the difficulties and then overcame them by looking to God. So doubt does not mean no faith. I I want us to get that this morning. But my point says that the glory of God guards us against unbelief. What do I mean? The glory of God, his majesty, his infinite worth and glory, it guards those doubts from settling down deep into the soil of our hearts and causing thorns and weeds to grow there. It helps us to have faith. Where do I get this in the text? Verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief at God's promise. As we established, the doubts didn't take hold, but was strengthened in his faith. How did that strengthening of faith manifest? Gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. What was the secret to Abraham's strengthened faith? He gave glory to God. Faith ultimately is that which gives glory to God. And as we give glory to God, we are made strong and our faith will be strong. So I think the question has to be asked, if the glory of God guards against unbelief, and if I'm here this morning and I'm struggling with doubts and I want to guard against them becoming unbelief, the question has to be asked, what does it mean to glorify God? What does that look like? If my faith glorifies God, how do I glory in God all the more to bolster my faith? I think this is what it means when it says that Abraham gave glory to God. Abraham rightly recognized who God is and what he is. Abraham rightly recognized who God is and what he is. Abraham dwelled on who God is. He doesn't do anything special. He doesn't say anything special. For Abraham to glorify God doesn't mean he said something specifically or performed anything specifically. No, he considered God. He considered who he is. He considered his attributes. He considered that he is eternal, namely that God is. He has no beginning and no end. He is the great I am. Nothing was before God. He considered his omnipotence, as we highlighted earlier, that God brings life from dead things and speaks things into existence that do not exist. Let there be light, he proclaims, and there is light. He considered God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere with us. We cannot escape him nor hide from his eyes. It is as Psalm 139 says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. Abraham considered God's holiness and his majesty, his righteousness and his justice, his truth, his aseity, his unchangeability, and so on. So he faced the facts of his situation. He faced the doubts, but he did not stare at them. Instead, he in faith glorified God by dwelling on the God who is. The God who is all of these things, and in so doing, Abraham glorified 
God. The main thing that mattered to Abraham was that God had spoken a promise, and in faith he turned to that God and glorified him. So the glory of God guards against unbelief. And real quick, let me say this. Unbelief must be guarded against. Why is that? Because unbelief at its very root is the most heinous of sins. Unbelief at its very root is the most heinous of sins. That's a strong statement I recognize. Remember, though, I'm differentiating here between doubt and unbelief. If you're struggling with doubt, with the intention to believe, that's not unbelief. But unbelief ultimately fails to take the God of truth at his word. It's the creation shouting back to the creator, you don't matter. You're not important. There's nothing so insulting to God as to not believe him. That's why unbelief is so terrible. It is insulting to God. It looks at creation. It considers who God is and everything that he has done. And then it states self-righteously, I don't need that God. I don't need him. But pastorally, if you are struggling with feeling overcome by doubt, if you're wanting clarification on doubt and unbelief and what I'm saying here, any of the pastors or elders would love to talk to you. Questions aren't bad. Be like the father, though, of the sick boy in Mark 9 who cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So we have to ask ourselves in the midst of those questions, what's my heart truly seeking here? Am I seeking to ask with the goal of belief? Or have I focused so much on the doubts and I've never looked to Christ that I'm in a dangerous spot? Faith ultimately is that which gives glory to God by seeing the truth about him and trusting him no matter the cost. So allow yourselves, brothers and sisters, to be awed by the glory of God in order to guard against unbelief in your life. Fourth and lastly, an imputed righteousness is given by faith. An imputed righteousness is given by faith. Look at verse 22. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now it was credited to him, was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul here arrives at the conclusion of his argument and he's going to apply it to his readers. For sure there's been application throughout, but now he's going to make it more explicit. In our section today, if you remember back starting in verse 13, he starts with the promise given to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That we would inherit the world, Paul says. And Abraham believed in the God who resurrects the dead and it was counted to him as righteousness. He didn't work to make that promise happen. He didn't obey a law to make it happen. He trusted in the only one who could make it happen. And as we think forward from Genesis to Romans and even through Revelation, the progress of Revelation, the storyline of Scripture, shows us, and Paul makes clear time and time again, that we too, who believe in the God who raised Christ from the dead, vindicating him and showing all that he has triumphed over sin and death, we too who believe in that God will have a righteousness credited to us. We now Those to whom God calls and those who believe are the offspring of Abraham too. The beauty, friends, of this doctrine of justification by faith includes the reality that faith credits to us the righteousness of Christ. What does it mean that it was credited? Or your translation might say counted to him. Simply put, it is ascribed to us as if it was ours. The word that has been used for hundreds of years to describe this doctrine is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. That's why I labeled the point as I did. It's not imparted to us. Christ gives us gifts by his spirit. Those are imparted to us. No, it's imputed. 
our faith in Christ unites us to Christ so that, we, so that when God sees us, because of our union with his son, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It's an imputed righteousness given to us, brought about by faith, and realized in our union with him. And the beauty of this is that it's available to you who are still resting in your own righteousness. You see what Paul says at the end there? He says this, that the words that was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but for our sake, that righteousness will be credited to those who believe in the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Praise God. That's good news. That righteousness can be given to you. As it says in the beginning of chapter 5, from this great news comes the result. We now, who that is true of, we have been given Christ's righteousness. We now have peace with God through Christ. Is that true of you this morning? Do you feel at peace with God because of your union with Christ? Christ community, we want you to know this doctrine and to rest in this doctrine that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone because it is the foundation of the gospel. We want you to understand that your righteousness is not your own, but an alien righteousness. That simply means another's righteousness. The righteousness of another has been given to you. Why? Because doctrine matters. Theology matters. It affects every part of your life. It allows us as your pastors to go to the hospital bed of the saint who is about to pass away and remind them of this truth. Their righteousness is in Christ. They have peace with God. It's okay. There's nothing to fear. It allows one mother to tell another struggling mother here, don't keep comparing yourself to others. Your worth and your righteousness is in Christ. It allows the teenager here to not care when they are ridiculed for their faith or for not fitting in. Your righteousness is in Christ. You belong to him. It allows the husband to not have to feel as if he's constantly having to prove himself at work or he amounts to nothing. Your righteousness is in Christ. He has already proven your worth. And so on and so on. Every area of life. This doctrine that Paul is hammering at throughout Romans affects all areas of our lives. So may we rest in this righteousness, Christ community, remembering that all the promises of God and our justification before him are ever only received by faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we as your church praise you for the work that you have done in so many hearts here. We praise you that we can recognize from this text and from other texts that our works ultimately cannot justify us before you. God, we need another's righteousness to be declared holy and justified before you. And we praise you that you have provided that through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, Father, that we recognize that this then doesn't just do one thing for us at the beginning of our lives, but rather this reality, this doctrine affects every single part of our lives as we constantly are trying to earn salvation in different ways and trying to justify ourselves before you. Help us to recognize that we already have been justified because of the finished work of Christ. I pray that you would work on the heart here that does not know you, that you would cause faith to spring up in the seedbed of doubt. And may they come to love you and serve you. Father, we as your church praise you and worship you. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen.
forever done. The work forever done, only by the blood. It is finished. It is finished. Oh, you took all our shame, left it in the grave. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. The work Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you live and rule and reign. We worship you, God, and pray this in your name. Amen. Before you go, three things. Thing number one, there will be people down here to pray for you if you need it. Please don't leave the room without taking advantage of that. Uh, thing number two is we have prayer for the, the, our prayer service tonight in room 12 at 4 p.m. It is your opportunity to come and, and petition the living God on behalf of the church and the community uh, and finally receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you peace as you go from here. We love you and we will see you next week. Thank you.